It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, void, were prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. <laughs> From NBI Studios, this is Truth and Justice, a crowdsourced investigation in real time. I'm Bob Rock. Happy New Year, everyone. Hopefully all of you had a relaxing week and you were able to spend some time with the loved ones in your life. I definitely took some time to unplug last week and get in some quality family time, but now it's a new year and it's time to get back to work. I struggled a little bit this week trying to figure out where I wanted to go next, and ultimately I landed on the question that so many of you have been asking me. Knowing what we know about the DNA evidence found on Becky's body and the fact that at one point both Robert and Christian were excluded as the contributors of the fingerprints on the business card, how did the jury convict them? I spent this entire week coming up with that answer, and honestly, I was shocked when I realized how it happened. This is Season 12, Episode 39, Stipulated. Texas Ranger James Holland is a legendary interrogator. They call him the serial killer whisperer. You can't hide those indications, and that's why yesterday I knew that you did it. But now, shocking interrogation tapes reveal how the super cop really operates. And that's why they asked me to come in, because I'm special. From something else, The Marshall Project and Sony Music Entertainment, this is Smokescreen. Just say you're sorry. Listen and follow on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Amazon Music, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. When I sorted out the list of everyone who testified about the forensics in this case, I was expecting to have kind of a long episode. There were a lot of people who testified about all of the things that Susanna Ryan broke down for us two weeks ago. But sadly, what I discovered was that there's a very clear reason why the jury didn't put much weight into the exculpatory evidence. They didn't really know about it. As it turns out, this episode isn't going to be long at all. I'm not going to read all of the transcripts to you. I'll have them all posted on our website in their entirety if you want to read them. But really, they're not very long. It's a total of, I think, six people that testified, but none of the testimonies are very long. What I'm going to do is just touch on the key points, all of the key points, everything that was testified to at trial in regards to the forensics. And I'm going to break it all down in the order of appearance at trial. And so first up is investigator David Eichelt. Eichelt was charged with processing the crime scene. What becomes apparent in his testimony is that the state is well aware of the problems that the DNA on Becky Sox presents to their theory of the case. In Eichelt's testimony, he explains that he attended the autopsies, both to observe and to collect and catalog any evidence found during the process. The prosecutor, Aki, 
reads from Eichelt's report and has him confirm the items that he collected during the autopsies, starting with Becky. Aki asks if a globe shoe was collected, and Eichelt confirms. He then lists out Becky's bra, which was noted as burnt clothing, some burnt underwear, blue denim pants, a blood sample for carbon monoxide testing, the gauze pad from the body bag, and a navel piercing stud. And then next up was Vicky. Collected off of her body was a thermal long underwear shirt, a pair of blue Hanes brand sweatpants, and quote, possible underwear and sock material, end quote. A left earring and one deformed large caliber copper jacketed lead projectile. And that's the bullet that was found in Vicky's head. John was wearing a pair of Roxy brand sandals. Those were collected along with what's listed as an unknown piece of clothing, quote, possibly a shirt, and the birdshot and wadding that was discovered in his body. Eichelt goes on to testify about processing the vehicles on the scene. We find out here that he did tape lifts on the seats and floorboards of Becky's car, but we never hear anything about what, if any, trace evidence was found on those lifts. And it's here that we learn that there was a total of one single usable fingerprint found on the crime scene, not counting the business card. The one print was found on the window of Becky's car, and it was determined to belong to Bo Nash. Neither side made much of a deal about Bo's print being on the car, because he had just been up to the house two nights before the murders, and he had a pretty solid alibi. But Christian's attorney, John Dolan, caught something that Aki tried to breeze past during direct. When Aki was asking Eichel to confirm the items that he collected during the autopsy, he hit them all except two. Aki listed in his question item number 075183 as a globe shoe. What Dolan points out in Cross is that he conveniently left out what the report actually says is that 075183 included one globe shoe and two pairs of black socks. That doesn't really mean a whole lot, but if you're paying attention, you'll see that it does reveal a key's understanding that the socks are a problem. He knows it. He knows the jury will know it. So he tried to avoid the topic altogether by just breezing past it and pretending that it wasn't listed on the report. Unfortunately, that's where the sock discussion ends with Eichelt. I'd hoped the defense attorneys would ask a few questions about the socks just to put them in the front of the jurors' minds. Like, are you aware of any DNA testing that was done on the socks? See, even if the answer's no, personally, my non-lawyer strategy would be to draw the jurors' attention to the socks. If for no other reason than because the state doesn't want them paying attention to them, which should tell the defense it's probably a good idea to make them think about it. But that's all we get on the socks from Eichelt just that he did in fact collect them as evidence. And before I move on from Eichelt, I do want to point out something clever that Dolan does throughout the trial. Every time there's a Riverside officer on the stand, before he wraps up Cross, Dolan always asks the officers where they were coming from when they responded to the scene. In Eichelt's case, he says Palm Desert. And then Dolan asks how long it took them to drive from Palm Desert up to the scene. Eichelt says it took him about 40 minutes. It's just Dolan's way of slowly chipping away at the 38-minute drive test from the crime scene to Cathedral City. Next up was Chantelle Callahan. She was the DNA analyst at Hit Labs back in 2007, 
when Christian was first included as a possible contributor to the DNA on the business card. She explained that in August of 2007, she was sent the two wheelbarrow handles, the Riverside Sheriff Association pen, and the business card to perform DNA testing. She explains that she found a sufficient amount of DNA for amplification on the card, the pen, and the right wheelbarrow handle. On the left handle, she says she got, quote, a zero quantitation value. The prosecutor, it's Smith this time doing direct with Callahan, tries to make the point that the lack of DNA on the left handle and the small amount on the right handle could be due to the user of the wheelbarrow wearing gloves. He also suggests that the water from the fire hose might wash away some of the DNA. Callahan agrees that both scenarios are possible, although I can say from my personal experience and training, it's highly unlikely that the firefighters wash the DNA away. Firefighters are taught and trained to use extreme caution to preserve evidence when extinguishing a fire, particularly when you know that a crime was committed. Point being, they wouldn't have opened up the bale in the hose and extinguished Becky with 125 pounds of pressure. They would have carefully cracked the hose open and just used enough water practically drizzling out of the hose to extinguish the fire. I'm positive that's what happened here based on the condition of Becky's body and the photos taken shortly after it was extinguished. The ground isn't even wet around the wheelbarrow. I'd be shocked if even a drop of water touched the handles or Becky's lower legs. The firefighter's training would be to protect and preserve her body as best as possible, and the evidence suggests that that's exactly what they did. Smith is actually arguing here with a double-edged sword. Now, on one hand, he's trying to make the jury believe that Christian was touching the business card at the crime scene at the time of the murders. Him just touching the card at some random place and some random time doesn't put him on the crime scene. So without saying it, he's trying to get the jury to believe that Christian wasn't wearing gloves. But then at the same time, he's trying to explain away the lack of DNA on the wheelbarrow handles with the argument that he was wearing gloves. Most of the rest of Callahan's testimony gets very technical. She's talking about the swabbing, the extraction and amplification methods. Ultimately, she testifies that Christian could not be excluded as a contributor of the DNA on the card. She breaks down the calculation method she used to come up with the 1 in 320,000 Caucasians that could be included as well. Then Christian's attorney is first up for cross. Dolan makes sure to point out that the left handle had zero DNA and Robert and Christian are excluded from the right handle and the pen. And then he brings the sock up again. He's subtle about it, and I find myself wishing he had been more direct. I would even ask questions that he knows will be objected to. We see that all the time in trials that we've covered, just to put the thought in the juror's mind. But he doesn't do it. Instead, he just confirms with Callahan that she was not given socks, a shoe, or denim pants to test. And that's it. He goes on from there to ask if any of the samples were preserved for future testing. Callahan says she didn't specifically or intentionally save the extracted DNA, but ultimately concludes, based on her notes, that there was some left that would have been saved for 10 years. And then, Dolan makes a great point about transfer DNA. Unfortunately, the fingerprints attributed to Christian make this argument kind of moot. But there is a good point here. Dolan suggests that if he himself shook hands with Miss Callahan, and then she picked up a business card and took it to her lab, one that he hadn't touched, and then it sat in the lab for two years, and then two years later she swabbed the card from DNA she could potentially find his DNA on the card, even though he never actually touched it and certainly didn't touch it in her lab at the time she tested it. 
and she agrees that's possible, which makes his point. I think less about the transfer, but more about the fact that the DNA on the card does not prove when or where Christian touched it. Robert's attorney, Jeff Moore, was far more technical in his cross-examination. It's pretty clear that he has a very good understanding of DNA technology. Unfortunately, most of what he talks about went right over my head, and I suspect it probably went over the jurors' heads as well. He does ask about YSTR testing, which we learned about in our last episode. Callahan had testified that there was a mixture of DNA on the card, and one of the contributors could be female. So Moore asks her if she performed YSTR testing, which would separate the male from the female DNA. She says that she didn't. She wasn't asked to, and she wasn't even sure if the lab was capable of doing so back in 2007. And then that was basically it. The state showed that Christian's DNA was on the card, and it could have found its way onto the card at any time in the past and at any place. The socks and pants were brought up, but only the fact that they weren't tested. And the jury heard that Robert and Christian were excluded from the wheelbarrow handle and the pen. Next up came Blaine Kern. He was the owner of Hit Laboratories and was actually the person who changed the probability of the DNA on the business card. We find out through his testimony that Hit Laboratories went out of business in 2010. It sounds like the business just wasn't profitable and the board of directors dissolved the company. But Smith makes sure to point out that the lab never lost its accreditation, nor did it go bankrupt before closing down. Robert's attorney, Jeff Moore, had alluded to both during the previous day's testimony. We find through Kern's testimony that he didn't actually retest the DNA on the business card in 2014. He says that he received a call from the DA's office. That would have been after Robert and Christian were arrested the first time. But he never really specifies what the DA was requesting. What we do know is that all he did was look back at the work Callahan had done back in 2007 and use not a new method, just a different method of calculating the probabilities. He says that she input the full DNA mixture into a database, and that's how she came up with the 1 in 320,000, whereas he separated the major contributor from the minor and then input just the major profile into the database, and that's how he came up with the 1 in 28 trillion. And just to add a little bit of levity to this conversation, I have to share Jeff Moore's objection here. This is a very serious situation, so let's just take a minute and enjoy the little bit of humor here. So Smith is trying to make the point that basically it's Christian's DNA. Only one in every 28 trillion Caucasian humans would be included in this profile, and he says there are only about 7 billion people on the planet. In order to make the point, Smith asks Kern how many billion are in a trillion. And Kern, who I'm sure is a very bright guy but was completely caught off guard, and mental math doesn't appear to be his strong suit, particularly not when he's put on the spot like this. So he stumbles around and he says uh, 10 times, then 100, there's 100 billion in a trillion. And then Jeff Moore objects and says, objection misstates universal math. And the judge says he's never heard that objection before. And he starts asking Kern if he's sure about the math. Kern corrects himself and says it's a thousand, there are a thousand billion in a trillion. And then Moore says he'll withdraw his smart-ass objection. 
In Dolan's Cross, he seemed to be trying to suggest that Kern's testimony is bought and paid for, which is kind of a common tactic with paid experts. He asks how much he was paid. Kern actually doesn't know. He says he has to dig up the records. It turns into a big thing about when he could find the records and where and when they could get him back, but it just goes nowhere. And honestly, those never do. This happens on the defense side. It happens on the prosecution side. We see it all the time. Any paid-for expert witness that doesn't help your case, you'll always see the other side try to act like they're only giving that testimony because they received money. Happens all the time. Didn't even play out here because he was not able to come up with the invoices and didn't know the numbers off the top of his head. But Jeff Moore did score a pretty good point in cross-examination. You heard in our last episode, Miss Ryan was talking about signs of degradation in the DNA on the business card. She was talking about how she could see something in the peaks and the electropharograms, how the way they were sloped, it looked like there was degradation to the DNA. Well, Moore catches on to this too, and he asks Kern about it. And Kern confirms that the DNA on the card does look like it's degraded, which is pretty important. So Moore asks if DNA that has been left exposed to the elements as opposed to being carefully packaged would show these signs. And Kern agrees, and then Kern gives this example. Quote, Let's say you had a bloody nose a year ago, and the blood stain is still on your concrete outside of your house. It's probably going to be very degraded, like this, because of the sunlight and the environmental conditions. End quote. Alarm bells were going off for me when I read this. He says that the DNA would be degraded like this, meaning what we see on the business card DNA, if it was outside exposed to the elements for a year. Now, he's certainly not saying that this card was outside for a year. I don't want to misstate that. But he is saying that based on the peaks and the charts, the DNA is degraded to the point that it's what it could look like after being exposed to the elements for a year. And understand, he's not talking about the condition of the card. He's saying that the actual DNA itself is degraded, meaning it could have been on that card for a very, very long time. And this is another example of where I wish the point was driven home to the jury, but I don't think that it was. Moore asked the question, got the answer he was looking for, and then he moved on, hoping that the jurors understood the point that he was trying to make. The only other thing he did to at least get his point on the record is confirm with Kern that studies have determined that the ninhydrin used to develop the fingerprints does not degrade DNA like this, which leaves just time and environment. Those are the only two things that could cause those peaks to be sloped like that, that could cause that kind of degradation. I'll quickly breeze through the remaining three witnesses. Like I said, this is going to be a short episode. I'm not going to bore you with a bunch of details that just aren't relevant or useful. You can read all of that in the transcript on the website. So Alma Flores is the next person to testify. She was the fingerprint examiner with the DOJ who positively ID'd Christian as having made both prints on the business card. To be honest, this is the testimony where I was expecting to see some fireworks. The DNA on the card is what it is. Seems fishy to me. Susanna said it's not fishy. And I believe her. That's why we bring on experts. But the fingerprints are baffling to me. There were only ever one set of photos taken of the card, and it was done back in 2006. The lab then concluded that there were no comparable prints on the card. Then a year later, two more technicians took a crack at the prints and determined that one of them was suitable for comparison, and both Robert and Christian were excluded. 
as I've said in the past, in order to exclude, the analyst has to find specific data points that don't match up. And they did that in 2007. But then in 2018, in the eve of the trial, Alma Flores takes those same pictures and determines that Christian Smith matches not one, but both prints. So I jumped into her trial testimony looking for an explanation about how that happened, but I didn't get it. Flores explains that she was able to quickly eliminate Robert. There are three types of swirls that can be present in the middle of your fingerprint. There's whirls, arches, and loops. The two prints on the card both had whirls, and nine out of Robert's ten prints have arches, so they can automatically be eliminated. And the one that had a loop that could maybe be a whirl was compared and also quickly excluded. There weren't any data points to match up. Through her examination, Flores found that not only were both prints comparable, but Christian matched nine data points on one of them and ten data points on the other. And since eight was the standard used by the DOJ lab at that time, that qualified as a match. So somehow, Yolanda Pena Perez and Jennifer Sniff saw specific data points excluding Christian, and yet Flores found 10 that included him, and apparently none that excluded him. Because understand, if there's one that excludes you, you're excluded. They all have to match. There can be some that you can't find data points, but if I have a characteristic in my fingerprint that isn't present on the latent that it's being compared to, it's not mine. Even if a lot of the other points match up, if there's one that doesn't, it's not mine. So again, this is a big deal to me. I'm, I'm waiting for this conflict to come up. But the prosecutor, Smith, just drops it in there. He points out that back in 2007, another lab concluded that the prints were not a match. And we don't really get an explanation as to how that could be. He just suggests to Flores that she doesn't know the experience level of the other individuals who analyzed the prints. Which, of course, Flores says, no, she doesn't know who did it. And then that's it. Both defense attorneys try to throw in some doubt about the ID, but none of it lands. They don't ask specific questions about the process of exclusion. Flores just explains that she put the digital images into Photoshop to adjust the contrast and enlarge the photos for comparison. And bingo, she got her match. And nothing else is said about it. The last witness on the subject was called by the defense. Jennifer Sniff was called to the stand. She was the one that verified Yolanda Pena Perez's work back in 2007. Finally, I was hoping to see an attack on the fingerprint ID, but again, it never comes. Moore begins by asking about Yolanda Pena Perez's qualifications. Perez is the one who actually determined Christian was excluded from the print. Sniff just verified those findings afterwards. We find out that at the time the analysis was done, Perez had been working as a latent print examiner for 12 years, so she's definitely not a rookie. I kept reading, looking for the moment when the questions were asked about the exclusion, and finally I came across this from Jeff Moore. Quote, We've already received a stipulation as to what you actually did in this case, but I do want to just briefly show you what's been marked as Exhibit 149. Are you familiar with that business card? Followed by, quote, we did hear about what Ms. Perez and you did on this case, so I'm not going to get into it. End quote. There was a stipulation, and that's why the defense didn't attack the ID. Basically, the prosecution and defense decided 
yeah, we both agree that that happened. So we'll just let the jury know that they can accept that as fact, and we won't talk about it through testimony. The only reason Sniff was put on the stand was to explain how the ninhydrin process works and to verify that she and Perez took the pictures. I finished all of this testimony, and I was left wondering what the hell happened here. The best defense Robert and Christian had was the DNA found on Becky's body. The DNA that you heard about in our last episode, on her sock. And it was never brought up by the defense. All we get are two mentions of the fact that Eichelt collected the socks and that they were never sent to Callahan at HIT to test. If you're confused why this happened, you're not alone. So was I. I thought I missed something. I thought I had to have missed something. Surely the defense would have put the DNA analyst from Sorensen on the stand and have them explain that there was DNA discovered on the victim's body and that Robert and Christian were excluded. And so was every other male in her life. But I looked and I looked and that testimony's not there. How did the state get around this massively exculpatory evidence and secure a conviction? Well, they did it through a stipulation and a dishonest closing argument. This trial went on for nearly two months. That's a long time and a lot of information for a jury to absorb. During those two months, about one minute was dedicated to the DNA on the socks. And the information delivered about it wasn't at all complete nor accurate. Let me start out by explaining what a stipulation is for any of you who don't already know. A stipulation is when the state and the defense agree on certain facts. Basically, they say, yes, we both agree that is a fact And therefore, there's no reason to put up a witness and argue about it in front of the jury. We'll just tell the jury that they can accept it as fact and we'll move on. In this case, the state strategy, as we saw through testimony, was to try to avoid the socks. First, Aki conveniently left the sentence about the socks being collected out of his question to Eichelt. And then we have this stipulation. Rather than have a DNA expert spend a day testifying about the socks, driving it into the jurors' minds... The state just conceded that there was DNA there and it wasn't Robert or Christian's. That may seem like kind of a dumb move, but it worked out perfectly for them. Like I said, the jury was trying to observe two months worth of information. The state gambled that this quick 60-second procedural discussion would slip their mind. For starters, we heard Susanna Ryan's analysis in the last episode. By looking at the charts, she was able to exclude Robert and Christian as the contributors on all the DNA on the socks. But that's not what was stipulated to. The stipulations were stated to the jury in quick succession. There was a mixture of DNA on Becky's genes, Becky can't be excluded from the mixture, and no mention of male DNA or who could be excluded. There was DNA on the outside ankle of Becky's left sock. It was a mixture, Becky can't be excluded, and no determination is made as to Robert and Christian. Same thing is said about the inside foot area of the left sock, and then again the same story with the outside ankle area of her right sock. And then here it is. I'll read to you the stipulation in its entirety. Quote, 
The DNA profile located on the inside foot area of Becky's right sock is a mixture of at least two individuals, at least one of which is male. Becky Friedley could not be excluded as a possible major contributor of this mixture. Robert Pape and Christian Smith were excluded as contributors to this sample. End quote. And that's it, ladies and gentlemen. That is all the jury heard about the socks. Slid in between stipulations that are inconsistent with what Miss Ryan concluded, the jury heard those two sentences. That was it. And those two sentences were buried in page 7 of 13 pages of stipulations. So the state and the defense agreed that what I just read was fact and told the jury that they can accept that and 23 other stipulations as fact, including the fact that Christian was once excluded as belonging to the fingerprint on the business card. And that, in my opinion, was a huge fuck up. Not only because the point wasn't driven home to the jury, but the stipulations weren't accurate, certainly weren't complete, which proved to be devastating during closing arguments. Christian's attorney, John Dolan, did a good job of showcasing this exculpatory DNA during his closing. He said, there's the killer's DNA right there on her body, on the sock, which would have been impactful if the state didn't get the last word. During Aki's closing rebuttal, he took advantage of the incomplete and misstated stipulation, took the socks off the table for the jury. Aki almost jokes to the jury about Dolan claiming the DNA on the socks came from the killers. He says that Dolan wants it both ways, both claiming that the DNA on the business card isn't important while saying the DNA on the socks is, which, by the way, is exactly what he himself is doing. And it's an incredible oversimplification of what Dolan was saying and what I've also been saying. It's not that this DNA doesn't matter because it matches his client and this other DNA does matter because it doesn't. It's not that simple at all. The point is and was that we have no way of knowing that the business card has any connection to this crime at all. We have evidence that the DNA had been on the card long enough to have been degraded by the elements. There's no way to know when or how the card made its way 300 yards out into the desert. And we also don't even know if Becky was ever out in the desert that night. We have one partial footprint of hers, one single footprint, way out the desert that could have been there for a week. But the sock DNA is a different story. We know through testimony that Becky had just showered a couple hours before the murders. So we know that she had only been wearing those socks for a very short period of time. We can probably presume, at least assume, that they had been laundered before she put them on. So we know that she had only been wearing those socks for a very short period of time, on the night of the murders. Just before these murders happened, she was naked in the shower, came out of the shower, and then put the socks on. And we do know that someone picked her up and put her in that wheelbarrow. And that's why the DNA is important. But a key brushes that off, he sets him up, he knocks him down. This is how he explains the sock DNA away. Quote, Many of you have walked through your house, right? You track DNA into this courtroom based on what Miss Giamanco says, and that's true. It depends on whether or not there's a detectable amount, right? So think about what Becky did that night when she was getting ready. 
and think about the people who are in her environment at the time. John Hayward, Vicki Freely, her friends Javier and Bo Nash were up there at the house. Friends who have come in the past. Ron Freely was up there at some point in time. A bunch of people have come and gone. He goes on and on and explains this whole list of people who have been up to her house recently. People who could have left their DNA and whose DNA she could have picked up onto her socks. So the jury went into deliberations thinking that the DNA on Becky's socks could be transferred from Javier, who had just been there, Bo, who had just been there, John, who lived there, Vicky, who lived there, or even Ron Friedley, who had been there a year before, which is a compelling argument if it weren't for the fact that we know and a key knew that every single one of those people that he named as possible contributors in his closing arguments in the final word of the trial had already been compared to that DNA and ruled out. It could not have been transferred from Javier. It could not have been transferred from Bo or John or Vicky or any of those people because they'd already been tested. Under Aki's orders, under the prosecution's orders, Sorensen did that testing and confirmed it was none of theirs. But he said it anyway, and that's all it took to make the most important piece of forensic evidence in this case seem useless to the jury. Truth and Justice is an NBI Studios production and is distributed by Wondery. Edited by Kelly Barron's Brink and sound engineered by Shane Yoder. All music for the show was created, composed, and scored by PutThemInASong.com, who also mixed and mastered this episode. All of our fonts across all of our logos and banners were created by Tate Krupa of Red Swan Graphic Design, and you can find more of Tate's work on Etsy. Thank you to Katie Ross of CreatedInTandem.com for designing, creating, managing, and maintaining our website, TruthAndJusticePod.com, where you can view all photos and documents discussed in every episode. And a big thank you to our transcription team, Pamela Westby, Kathy McElhaney, Kay Woodyomnick, Ginger Fiola, Erica Cantor, Danielle Rohr, Jennifer Ford, Courtney Wimberly, and Melissa Cardenas. And as always, thank you to all of you for all of your engagement and support. If you like the show and you'd like to support us, you can do so in several ways. To financially support the show, the best thing you can do is just go to patreon.com slash truthandjustice. You'll not only be supporting the show, but you'll get something in return. On Patreon, you can pledge as little as $3 a month, and we have reward levels. For just $5 a month, you get access to ad-free versions of all of our episodes and behind-the-scenes bonus video content every week. Then other reward levels include t-shirts, hats, and even the opportunity to co-host one of our Friday follow-up episodes. Just go to patreon.com slash truthandjustice. You can also do us a huge favor by going to iTunes and leaving us a five-star rating and review. And lastly, you can always support us by supporting the brands that sponsor this program. If you have a new case that you'd like us to consider for future seasons, you can submit your cases on our website, truthandjusticepod.com. Just click on the case submission button and fill out the form. And the most important thing that you can do is to engage in our investigations. You can keep in touch with us through our email at theories at truthandjusticepod.com. You can like our Facebook page or join in on the conversation on the Truth and Justice Podcast fans page on Facebook. And for all you tweeters out there, you can connect with us on Twitter at TruthJusticePod. And I can be found personally on all forms of social media at BobRuffTruth. And don't forget that we always have our 24-7 voicemail line open for questions, comments, or tips on our cases. 
That phone number is 269-224-2833. However you do it, stay engaged, stay in touch. But as for now, I'm signing off. I'm Bob Ruff, and this has been Truth and Justice. The Ford Ranger, a vehicle for all terrains and every passion. It's a workmate, a playmate, and to its drivers, a soulmate. So how do you improve the Ford Ranger? You go all in. The all-new Ford Ranger, the UK's best-selling pickup. Now available with rear bumper steps, tailgate workbench, and enlarged load box that can fit a Euro pallet. Go break it in. Search all-new Ford Ranger. Ford Pro, driving productivity. According to SMMT data, features may be optional extras with additional cost. Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on Chumbacasino.com. I looked over at the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's ChumbaCasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.